You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. And today is a very special episode because it is our Patreon-sponsored episode. So we'd like to say a huge thank you to Andrea for being our very first Patreon. And I'm just going to kind of jump in. I'm LD, your host. Along with me for this ride, as always, is TJ. Hi, TJ. Hey. What should we talk about? Well, we're talking about... The person that Andrea picked Mm -hmm. as for being our first Patreon, she was given the opportunity to pick the subject and the presenter of the episode. So again, huge thank you to her. Um, It's actually something that the next nine patrons we get will also get to send us their top three picks and we'll pick one of those. Yeah. So if you're one of the next nine Patreons, at the groupie level, and that's the oh, yeah. $5 level. level. Yeah. If you donate at the $5 level, the next nine Patreons will get to pick basically their top three choices for a subject. And we will reach out to you and kind of give you the skinny and the lowdown on that. But basically, you'll get to pick an episode. If you are interested in that, if you're enjoying the show and you want to have some power of who we do next. <laughs> and basically the reason why we say you'll get to choose between you'll, you'll send us your top three options is because there's a good chance that whoever you send us is actually kind of already in the catalog, but you will fast track that person for an episode. So yeah. And then there's some that we're holding for a specific time. Just looking into our magic crystal ball. Uh, And by crystal ball, I mean our Google Doc. (laughs) (laughs) We have our first double episode coming up on uh, week 14. And that is going to be... I'm going to go... 14 and 15. 14. Episode 14 and episode 15 will be a double episode. And it'll be my first double episode, which is going to be on Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Oh, blue eyes. Oh, blue eyes. So I'm deep into research now. (laughs) Also, we still have the contest going on right now for our iTunes. The iTunes reviews. The iTunes review book giveaway. So if you have our favorite iTunes review, you will get to choose between two books, which are our research books, which is Only the Lonely, which is about Roy Orbison, or A Sick Life by T-Boz. So... Whoever has the best review for us on iTunes will have an opportunity to win those. So listen for that. So we'll be announcing the winner of that contest on our last episode of March, which is going to be an episode on Karen Carpenter. I'm just spoiling, like, I'm just giving it out. I know. Here's spoilers. Giving it all away. Spoilers, spoilers, (laughs) spoilers. We also have our Spotify playlist that you guys can check out under my name, which is Lindley Ehrlich, and that's L-Y-N-L-Y-E-H-R-L-I-C-H. Before we jump in, uh, I just wanted to actually say thank you to everyone who has liked, subscribed, who has added us on Facebook, the people that have given us iTunes reviews. That helps us get more visibility so more people can find the podcast, so more people can, you know, start listening to the podcast and... Basically, the more love you show us, the more love we can show you guys. It's yeah. a give and take. And we absolutely love all the comments and and the outreach that everybody's been. We've had some amazing we've suggestions. Some, yeah, we've had some great suggestions. We've got some. We've got some great people out there listening already. So we're we're so grateful for that, and thank you so much. Yeah, you I know, mean, for for being a fledgling podcast, we're really we're really really grateful, and we're really proud. You know, that we were able to bring you this. And and honestly, it's been so good for us, almost for the reason why we're doing this episode today. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys so much for all the support you've given us so far. So, and that goes for you, Andrea, who gave us an amazing suggestion. And today we're actually going to be talking about Chris Cornell. (sighs) That one's, that's a tough one. Chris is a tough one. I mean, I, I think the music community still feels that loss very, very deeply. And it's also, it's a tricky topic. So we 
probably won't be as funny pun- as punchy today and yeah because it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty rough topic so you know he was a huge influence and just an amazing amazing artist and musician and the music community still feels that loss very very deeply and the fans feel that loss very very deeply and i i will say i will say this going in full disclosure at a very young age i actually didn't listen to soundgarden for one reason and that was because the music video for Black Hole Sun that video was so out. scary. And I was in like youth group at the time and we were talking about revelations. And <laughs> it just shook me so hard that I shut that part of music out of my life. So I don't know if this will make it for a better episode because I'm not emotionally connected but then I think it'll make it easier on you because when you get emotionally connected, you have a harder time getting through the getting material. through the material. But I will say that my husband is a huge Soundgarden fan and a huge Chris Cornell fan. And he made me sit down and listen to some of the music. And I, I think I turned a corner. Oh, it's the music is amazing. And his voice. Well, I his songwriting. I mean, just well, he he made me listen to sun shower mm-hmm. and i like turned a corner and i was like oh wow he's his voice is amazing oh yeah the the arrangements are awesome i listened to his ave maria which is different because i'm used to the aaron neville version and it's done so differently that i haven't actually heard that version yet i'll have to go look it up it's haunting well i would believe that it's it's beautiful so I did I, during my research. I actually turned a corner on Soundgarden. So and Chris Cornell. So good. <laughs> right up top, I'm just going to cite all my sources. It's his personal bio on his official website, Wikipedia, which I need to uh, start donating to them. Yeah, I because, feel like we both do. Yeah, an article on Alternative Nation by Brett Buchanan called "90 Singer Reveals Bold Truth About Chris Cornell." And Chester Bennington. There's a Billboard article by Joe Lynch, an article from blabbermouth.net, and I couldn't find the author of it. And then an article on the Detroit Free Press by Alicia Anderson and Brian McCollum. And so that's pretty much where all this information came from. So Chris Cornell was an American musician, singer, and songwriter, and he's best known as the lead vocalist for the rock band Soundgarden and Audio Slave. Cornell was also known for his numerous solo works and soundtrack contributions since 1991 as the founder and the frontman of Temple of the Dog, the one-off tribute band dedicated to his uh, late friend, Andrew Wood. Which I didn't realize that he had so, so much going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Multiple bands and just a lot happening. Yeah. And And what was interesting was I've heard of all... I've heard of Andrew, everything he's done. Like, I've heard of, of course, I've heard of Soundgarden. Of course, I've heard of Audio Slave. And, of course, I've heard of Temple of the Dog. So. See, I didn't listen to him in Soundgarden as much as Audio Slave. Because Soundgarden was just a little bit before my my rock phase. <laughs> just a little before. I knew Black Hole Sun. and But I really, I really started getting into rock when Audio Slave was getting started and he had already left Soundgarden for Audio Slave. So I know a lot of Audio Slave. <laughs> yeah. Which I I I think I was But now I, had, I just get I to had, go back and listen to Soundgarden, which is all right by me. I think I had more brand recognition with Soundgarden than I did with Audio Slave and then I did with Temple of the Dog, but definitely these are not unknown to me. Yeah. Cornell was born Christopher John Boyle on July the 20th, 1964, in Seattle, Washington, and that was where he was raised. And I will say that nature versus nurture here, Seattle was the place in the 90s for alt-rock. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't know that? I mean, Seattle was like the birthplace of grunge, and so much great music came out of that city. So his parents are Edward F. Boyle, a pharmacist of Irish Catholic background, and Karen Cornell... Mm -hmm an accountant and psychic of Jewish background. 
After his parents divorced when he was a teenager, Chris and his siblings adopted their mother's maiden name. And so that's how he went from Boyle to Cornell. Cornell was one of six children. He had two older brothers and three younger sisters. He attended Christ the King Catholic Elementary School, where he performed for the first time in front of a crowd singing the 1960s anti-war song, One Tin Soldier. Do you know that song, One Tin Soldier? Uh, no. He later attended Shorewood High School. When he was in the seventh grade, his mother pulled him and his sister out of Catholic school, and Cornell claimed that it was because they were about to be expelled for being too inquisitive, which would be... You get kicked out of school for asking too many questions? Yep, pretty much. Huh. Cornell recalled the episode in a 1994 interview saying, With a religion like that, it's not designed for anyone to ask questions. Being young people who have a natural curiosity and half a brain, you're going to start finding inconsistencies, which there are a ton of in organized religions. We both sort of made it clear in the classroom situations that we didn't get this. Explain this to me, and they couldn't. So we started creating a lot of problems, and that was one of the parts where I was like, "Me and Chris would get along." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Cornell traced his musical influences back to these are crazy influences, but they kind of make sense if you know his music. Back to Little Richard via the Beatles. He spent a two-year period between the ages of nine and eleven solidly listening to the Beatles after finding a large collection of Beatle records abandoned in the basement of a neighbor's house. He described himself at this age as a loner, and he was able to deal with his anxiety around other people through rock music. And that's one of the truest statements, is you find solace in music. During his teenage years, he spiraled into severe depression, dropped out of school, and almost never left the house. By age 12, he had access to alcohol, marijuana, LSD, psychedelic mushrooms, and prescription drugs, and used them daily by age 13. Stop. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so... That's deep for 13. For 13. And usually, like, at that point, at 13, people are, like, sneaking sips of alcohol out of their parents' liquor cabinet. I mean, he's doing, he's, he's doing mushrooms. That's, that's intense. Yeah. And LSD and... Well. Yeah. Stopped for a year, but he relapsed at age 15 for another year until he turned to music. So music kind of saved him from this. Cornell took piano guitar lessons as a child. He once explained to his mother that it saved his life. She bought him a snare drum, the instrument that he adopted into beginning his path to becoming a rock musician. Before becoming a successful musician, he worked as a busboy, as a dishwasher, and as a fishmonger at a seafood wholesaler and was a sous chef at Ray's Boathouse in Seattle. In the early 1980s, Cornell was a member of a cover band called The Shimps, which featured bassist Hiro Yamamoto and performed around Seattle. After Yamamoto left The Shimps, they, the band recruited bassist Kim Thale. Cornell and Yamamoto stayed in contact after The Shimps broke up, and the pair started jamming together. Eventually, Thale was brought in to join them. And so that was kind of the, um, after The Shimps broke up, when those three kind of got together, that sort of created Soundgarden. Soundgarden debuted with the 1987's EP Screaming Life on Sub Pop Records, which was followed by the 1988 EP prior to the band's full-length 1988 debut album Ultra Mega OK, which is, I love that name, (laughs) an essential touchstone for the codification of the grunge genre. In 1989, major label debut for A&M Records, Louder Than Love became their first album to chart on the Billboard 200 and they broke through commercially with 1991's Bad Motor Finger, which produced the singles Jesus Christ Posed, Rusty Cage, and Outshine. Videos for the latter two songs got heavy MTV rotation play. I love Outshine. That same year, Cornell, along with the members of what would become Pearl Jam, released the Temple of the Dog album Apple, which was a tribute to Mother Love Bone singer Andrew Wood, a former roommate of Cornell's who died of a heroin overdose. And I feel like one day we might have to do something about Andrew Wood. At the very least, maybe a short set. 1994 Super Unknown was meteoric. It took Soundgarden to unbelievable heights and turned Soundgarden into a household name. The album became their only studio LP to top the Billboard 200 and all five singles charts on the Alternative Songs chart. Of those songs, Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man are all-time rock classics. And that's, I think, putting oh, yeah. it mildly. Oh, yeah. For some reason, people love doing Spoon Man at karaoke. This is fun. 
Yeah. Spooky. I'm going to leave that in specifically because I left in Yum will be there. <laughs> in 1996, Down on the Upside, the band moved away from their heaviness of their previous releases and began experimenting with a more psychedelic sound. After a 1996 Lollapalooza tour and ensuing world tour, internal tensions led to the band calling it quits in 1997. Of course, they would reunite in 2012 for the well-received King Animal and continue to tour until Cornell's death. But I'm going to kind of give a chronology of what was happening during that time. So basically between like 2012 and Cornell's death. Right. Uh, just this year, the 25th anniversary of album's Soundgarden was released. While Soundgarden's output was warmly received by Generation X and positively reviewed by critics, Cornell's solo output, save his 1999 solo debut album, Euphoria Morning, was less so. But Cornell's career got a massive second win when he joined forces with members of Rage Against the Machine to create Audio Slave in 2001. Melding Rage Against the Machine's blistering punk metal attack with his nearly four-octave range, Audio Slave netted Cornell a new generation of rock fans. Audio Slave placed seven songs on on the Hot 100 over the course of three albums, including hard rock classics, Like a Stone, and Cochise, from their self-titled 2002 debut. So Cornell collaborated with an eccentric collection of artists through his career, from Alice Cooper to Timbaland, Mudhoney, Carlos Santana, and The Screaming Trees. He made a cameo in the 1992 film Singles and performed one of the better latter-day James Bond themes, You Know My Name, from 2006's Casino Royale. That song led to the single from his second solo album, 2007's Carry On, which featured a cover of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. And after covering The King of Pop, Cornell dove even deeper into the world of dance, pop, and R&B on his third solo LP, Scream, which is actually executively produced by Timbaland. Eschewing guitars for electronics, and if you don't know what eschewing is, it's rejecting or outright avoiding. We looked that up. That's your 10-cent word for the day. <laughs> the album was certainly Cornell's most artistically risky, but it was met with confusion from fans and scathing reviews from critics. On 2015's Higher Truth, a solo album released amidst Soundgarden's reunion, Cornell returned to rock, but he continued to experiment using drum loops and even a hurdy-gurdy on the album. And if you don't know what a hurdy-gurdy is, it's this weird stringed instrument that you play by turning a crank, mm -hmm. and I'll play what it sounds like. They real crazy, but they're fun. So hang on. I'm just going to play what it sounds like. So it's super weird. <laughs> So he went sober in 2002, and he really couldn't understand why people were basically deified after their lives were claimed by addiction. Speaking to the Tampa Bay Times in 2016, Cornell said, People die of drug overdoses every day, and nobody talks about it. It's a shame that famous people get all of the focus because it then gets glorified a little bit. Like, mm -hmm. this person was too sensitive for this world, and a... Light twice as bright lives half as long and all of that, which is all bullshit. It's not true. So again, that's a direct quote. So sorry for the cursing. Cornell's first wife was Soundgarden manager Susan Silver, and they had one child, Lillian Jean, in 2000 and divorced in 2004. He married his second wife, Vicky, in 2004, and they had two children together, a daughter in 2004 and a son in 2005. In the philanthropic realm, the couple co-founded the Chris and Vicki Cornell Foundation to support homeless and abused and impoverished children. And well, that's nice. That's something I didn't know about until I did the research on this. And I think I didn't know about that either. I think that's wonderful because, again, like Lisa Left Eye Lopez, his legacy will live on Yeah, in something that maybe will help. Makes it. It'll make someone's makes life a difference. Better. Yeah. yeah. Will better somebody's life. Prior to Cornell's death, Soundgarden had been working on the follow-up album to 2012, King Animal. So here's kind of a, a chronology of Chris's life from 1998 to roughly 2017. So in 1998 and 1999, 
Chris begins writing and recording with guitarist Alan Jonas and keyboardist Natasha Schneider of the band Eleven. Cornell's first solo album, Euphoria Morning, is released on September 21st, 1999. In 2000, the album single Can't Change Me is nominated for Best Rock Vocal Performance at the 2000 Grammy Awards. Bonus track, Sun Shower, is featured on the soundtrack for the film Great Expectations and is a reworked version of the track Mission, re-entitled Mission 2000, which is used on the soundtrack for the film Mission Impossible 2. In 2006, Cornell co-writes and performs the theme song to You Know My Name for the 2006 James Bond film Casino Royale. This is the first James Bond theme song since 1983's Octopussy to have a different title from the film and the first since 1990, uh, sorry, 1987's the Living Daylights, to feature a male singer. I mean, in James Bond themes, 90% of them are so iconic. Well, yeah. I mean, and in the recent years... I the... still remember Live and Let Die. Oh, man. That was a great one. <laughs> and even the the Guns N' Roses cover of it, again, another cover, is still so good. Amazing. He does the Bond themes, and in 2007... In May, June-ish, Cornell releases his second solo album, Carry On, produced by Steve Lillywhite, which includes groundbreaking reinventions of, my, reinventions of Michael Jackson's dance classic, Billie Jean, as a slow blues song. And it is so good. <laughs> I love that cover. In 2008, Cornell writes and records his third solo album, Scream, with producer Timberland. And plays summer shows across the U.S. with Linkin Park's Project Revolution Tour. And in the fall, he plays a solo show in the U.S. and Canada and appears in front of the president at the Kennedy Center Honors Gala in Washington, D.C. playing the Who's We Won't Get Fooled Again in a tribute to the band. And in 2009, Scream is released worldwide in the spring. And the first half of the year, Cornell continues to tour in the North and South America and across Europe, taking in a total of 21 nations and includes a triumphant open-air show in Tel Aviv. In December, he plays the first in his acclaimed songbook series of solo acoustic shows at the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles. I'm so sorry I missed those. In 2010, Cornell's collaboration with rock guitar Slash on Promise, Santana on Whole Lotta Love, and Italian new jazz group Gabin Lies are released. Chris plays more acoustic songbook shows at the Troubadour and the Roxy in Los Angeles. Those are two iconic clubs. Oh, yeah. I would say those two clubs are, I think the big four are Whiskey A Go-Go, The Viper Room. The Roxy. The Roxy and the Troubadour. Yeah. And I think those are like the four well, big clubs in L.A. The three of them are right there on the Sunset Strip. Troubadour is down a block, I think. Yeah. I've been to. I'm well, the, say Troubadours well, the, down on Santa Monica. Well, the Rainbow Room. Do people play at the Rainbow Room? Because I've just not really. Yeah, I've only I've only been to the Rainbow Room to have a drink. And I've been to the Viper Room to see a show in 2011. <laughs> in the spring, Chris Cornell embarks on a sold-out songbook solo acoustic tour in the U.S. and announces autumn dates in New Zealand, Australia, and South America. In August, he releases The Keeper, an original song written for the Mark. Foster-directed film Machine Gun Preacher, released by Relativity in September 2011. The song is a lead track on the film's soundtrack album and in December receives a Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Song. In September, he joins the members of Pearl Jams for a Temple of the Dog live reunion at the PJ20 Festival in Alpine Valley, Wisconsin. Wait, in Alpine Valley where Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing? Yeah. Huh. Scary. Trippy. Yeah. On November 21st, he releases Songbooks, his live acoustic album, featuring songs that were recorded on the spring tour. And in 2012, Chris continues to tour Songbook in the U.S. and Europe, and he continues through 2013 doing the same thing, and he records the song Mystery Chain, a duet featuring Joy Williams for the movie soundtrack, music from and inspired by 12 Years a Slave. So in 2015... He does a, a new studio album, Higher Truth, and it's released on September 18th, 2015. And Chris tours in North America. And on his official site, it says Australasia, which I assume is supposed to be Australia and Asia, but it's written as one word. So, <laughs> or it could just be Australia and a typo. We're not sure. Or 
Asia and a typo. We don't know. That would be a huge typo. <laughs> yep. 2016, Chris is still touring in Europe, North America, and South America. And on May 18th, 2017, Cornell, 52, was found dead early Thursday in his room at the MGM Grand in Detroit. Police say the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office ruled his death by a suicide hanging. I remember that. Well, here's the crazy I remember thing. That is like, Will had to remind me that for the longest time, no one actually knew what his cause of death was. People just heard he was dead and yeah. no one was saying... They wouldn't say anything. Anything. They just said that he was dead in the MGM Grand Hotel room. Nobody knew anything. Like, it was, it was really... I remember that news. I remember it being out everywhere. And, I mean, it was... It was... Uh, it was devastating. People were so confused and so shocked and... No one was giving any information. Yeah, and that was the thing is no one knew anything, and a lot of people were really upset by that. Yeah. So well, I'm going to yeah. just – I'm going to read this verbatim because this is from an article which kind of lays out what the coroner's office released about his death. And so this kind of comes from an article about the coroner's report. The city of Detroit released a 911 call that was placed from the MGM Grand in Detroit after singer Chris Cornell was found non-responsive in his hotel room. And this comes from the Detroit Free Press. After nearly two months of incomplete details, investigation documents from Detroit police help flesh out the final hours of singer Chris Cornell's life. The, the reports obtained Tuesday by the Free Press paint a late-night scene of a frantic wife's 100 miles away, a dogged bodyguard, and a crew of emergency personnel futilely trying to rescue the Soundgarden singer who was discovered unresponsive on the bathroom floor with a band around his neck. The new documents offer a few new revelations about the night in May when Cornell 52 was pronounced dead in his suite at the MGM Grand Detroit. But they do offer the most complete official account to date with the documents including a 911 call scene, photographs, investigative reports, and a statement from Cornell's bodyguard. So according to the records obtained by the Freedom of Information Act request, and that's one of those things where I'm, I'm usually like, no, too much governmenting, and then we get this. You know, there's too much government. There's good uses for some of these things, but there's some really bad uses for them as well. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm kind of on the fence of whether or not this is a good one or a bad one, but either way, at least it gives people some kind of closure because yeah. he did have a massive fan base. He so, had a huge fan base, and it was really hard not knowing what happened to him, just that he was dead. Yeah. So because of this Information Act request, a call from Cornell's wife prompted bodyguard Martin Christian to go into the Soundgarden singer's suite, room 1136, to check in on him because he did not sound like he was okay. Unable to access the locked room, Christian kicked open the main door and did the same with the interior bathroom door. I went inside and the bathroom door was partially opened and I could see his feet, Christian told the police in a signed statement. The bodyguard loosened the band from around Cornell's neck and then tried to resuscitate the singer by compressing his chest, Christian said in his statement. An additional medical personnel were summoned, and Cornell was pronounced dead at 1.30 a.m., an hour and 15 minutes after Kristen was first contacted by Cornell's wife, Vicki. Police determined that the death was a suicide, a department spokesperson said. That matched the ruling made, by, uh, made public by the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office on the day of Cornell's death. The documents released Tuesday chronicle a several-week investigation into the events of May 18th, which followed Soundgarden's performance at the Fox Theater in Detroit. The death of Cornell, one of the signature voices in modern rock, garnered international attention. What I'm about to say next is a trigger warning because some of this stuff might be a little bit graphic that I'm going to talk about, but I feel like we need to say it. So this is kind of a trigger warning if you're easily upset by this kind of stuff. We totally understand if you turn the podcast off or skip forward like a minute. Police photos released Tuesday show the blood-spattered bathroom. 
the red exercise band presumably used in the hanging, and the broken door jam from the bodyguard's forced entrance. Also pictured were personal effects such as Cornell's Delta Airline from his ticket from New York to Detroit, a prescription pill bottle, and an acoustic guitar lying on a brown chair. Dozens of the images in the report were blacked out. No photos of Cornell's body were visible. So there is a little... Well, that's, that's, that's good at least. Yeah, that's good. Officials also released the audio of a 911 call placed by an apparent hotel employee at 12.56 a.m. reporting a non-responsive guest inside of room 113. And this is a quote. The guest was attempting to hang himself, the caller said. The 911 operator asked, he's not breathing? No, the caller said. Tuesday's documents come amid weeks of uncertainty and speculation about the circumstances around his death. Early on, an attorney for Vicki Cornell says that the family was disturbed at inferences that Chris knowingly and intentionally took his own life. He did not want to die. If he was of sound mind, I know he wouldn't have done this. Chris Cornell's widow has penned a letter addressed to the late Soundgarden frontman days after he took his own life. Vicki Cornell writes in a note published online by Billboard that she's sorry that she didn't see what was happening to you that night. And that's from USA Today. I will say now that when I was doing a lot of research and looking up online, it seems like, and then again, I do apologize because I don't know her, you know, I don't know her background. I don't know where she came from, but it seemed like there were a lot of fans online that really don't like Vicky. And I'm not really? sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that why, why that is, but there's something that she does later on. And I was looking at the comments, and they're like, oh, look, she's looking for the spotlight again. What a shocker. It seems like there's a lot of hate for Vicky. If 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 you do know, please reach out to us and let us know. We, we would, I'd actually really like to know what the general consensus is on her. So I'll give out our socials at the end. So just reach out to us that way because I'm, I'm really interested in knowing because there seemed to be a lot of Vicky hate, and I'm not sure. Not sure why. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so I'm going to read you guys the autopsy toxicology report but pharmaceutical words are really hard so if i mispronounce the name of a drug i'm sorry it's just i don't i don't know drugs that well i know how to say advil you mean you're not a doctor i'm not a doctor but i have the handwriting of a doctor (laughs) that's why i type out everything (laughs) so cornell's autopsy report released june 2nd said toxicology test detected say it lorazepam Thank you. Which was used in the treatment of anxiety and sold as Ativan, pseudocedrin, a decongestant, and naloxone used to counter effects of opioids, bubidal, a sedative, and caffeine in his system. But reports relative to the drugs that they did not contribute to the cause of death. So he had a lot of drugs in his system, but that wasn't what killed him. Okay. Cornell, who was six foot three and weighed 180 pounds, was in a torn gray T-shirt and black underwear, according to officials. No note was found at the scene. As the events surrounding Cornell's death unfolded that night, nearly two months ago, Vicki Cornell was on the phone seeking updates. The bodyguard told police, "She told me that she called the front desk and they hung up on her." Kristen's statement said, "She called back a couple minutes later. Another person answered and told her that he was hearing about the incident." He said. MGM Grand Detroit has assisted fully with the investigation into this matter, spokeswoman Yvette Monet said in an email to the Free Press. Out of respect for the family, we will not be providing any information beyond the information we have already provided to the authorities. His wife, Vicki, and family were shocked to learn of his sudden and unexpected passing, Brian Bumbery, a publicist for Canal, said in a statement. The singer's family would like to thank his fans for their continuous love and loyalty and ask that their privacy be respected at this time. And this is kind of where I wanted to tell you my personal Soundgarden story, my personal Chris Cornell story. So, you know, you have those concerts and I told you this story before, you know how those concerts that, that if someone just walked up to you and said, here are two tickets, do you want to go to this concert? Would you take them? Yeah. And I had always said that I... I would go to a U2 concert if someone walked up and handed me two tickets. That was my go-to. Like, I would always say that. Like, yeah, if somebody just handed me two two U2 tickets, I'd go see them. (laughs) Well, my friend Justin 
actually won a set of tickets to go see U2 on the radio, and he didn't care about seeing them. So he called me up and was like, hey, I've got two tickets to a U2 concert. Do you want them? And I was like, how much? And he was like, eh, they're yours. So I was like, are you serious? So we went to go see U2, and this was two days after Cornell had died. I believe it was like two or three days after Cornell had died and U2 was doing their Joshua Tree Mm -hmm. where they would uh, go through all of the songs on the Joshua Tree album. And we get into the – it's the Rose Bowl. And so we get our tickets and we go into the Rose Bowl and we find a space pretty close to the stage because this is like the standing room only part. Oh, yeah, the general mission part. Yeah. Yeah. Which – I mean, I've, I'm fine standing for two hours if the concert's good. If it's not, then, yeah. you know. If it's, I'm getting older. I don't feel like it as much anymore. <laughs> now I like having a seat that I can sit Aren't in when I, I like feel like it. Aren't I, like, five years older than you, though? I know. Yeah. So so we get so we get into our little area of the the concert. And you know how they're always playing music over the, like, as you walk in, which is not... The music of the artist, but it's music similar. from... Yeah, it's, it's music yeah. similar to that. And so they play, like, Lenny Kravitz, and I'm trying to think of other artists that they, they were playing that night, but the lights went completely down, and all you could see were the exit signs, and they started playing Black Hole Sun, and it was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen in my life. It was going to make me cry. You're going to make me cry. Because they started playing Black Hole Sun. And almost one by one, people started holding their phones up. And they all started singing. And it was 10,000 people in one place honoring one person. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's okay. But it was so beautiful to me because all these people really cared about him. And... You have to think in a huge auditorium where people are talking and buried in their phones and not paying attention. They heard those first few notes of that song and it snapped them to attention and the whole place was singing and everybody had their phones waving and it it was like a thousand, ten thousand points of light and it was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen in my life and it just made me realize how important music was to people Mm -hmm. and the people behind the music so sorry it's okay (laughs) oh honey it was so beautiful like it was i posted on twitter today um it was a a moment on like the subway where people had just gotten out of this person's concert Mm -hmm. and they were all in the same subway station and they all started singing. But I love moments of that. Like yeah. where people get to get... Like we left the Mika concert and everybody was blasting the song that he did at the end. Yeah. And it was amazing. Like I just... I love how music brings people together. So I'm sorry that I had that little mental I always breakdown. enjoy that part when you're leaving the concert and you're like everybody's kind of listening to that artist still. I'm sorry that I had that little breakdown. I apologize. That's not professional at all. Considering what we do for this, like, we've said it before. We we do. We get attached. We get emotional. We get, I mean, we're not robots. <laughs> we care about these people by the time we're done researching them, even if they're not somebody that we really know much about. I mean, by the time we're done researching them, we feel very close with them. And I think, honestly, us getting emotional sometimes is... People can, the people listening can relate to that. We talk about people dying every week. Yeah, I know. Which is the hard part of our of what we're doing here. You know, that's why we invented short sets. Yeah. <laughs> to help us. So jumping back in, Disturbed Frontman and Disturbed is a band if you Oh yeah. Are here and Disturbed the Band. Disturbed the Band. Frontman. David Draymond paid tribute to Chris Cornell, Scott Weiland, and Chester Bennington at a concert in New York at Madison Square Garden on Monday, and this is Monday when the article was written, calling them 
a casualty of war. We have had far too many casualties in this war, Draymond said. He added, I miss Chester, I miss Chris, and I miss Scott. Mm-hmm. And then, for those who don't know, Chester Bennington was the frontman for Lincoln Park and uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Yep. And then Scott Weiland was uh, with Stone Temple Pilots. So Expo New Jersey reports that Draymond said that he was using a mammoth platform to urge fans to seek help when needed and assist their families and friends. Drag them kicking and screaming to rehab if you have to. He asked the crowd of 15,000 onlookers to raise their hand if they or someone they knew had struggled with the disease and almost every hand went up. In sober contrast to the band's Titanic 10,000 Fists single played a few minutes earlier. See, you're not alone, he said. We're in this war together. And then phone numbers for the National Suicide Prevention and Addiction Lifelines were shown on the screen. And um, this next section comes because Vicky actually went to Capitol Hill on February 25th to testify before the Congressional Bipartisan Heroin and Opioid Task Force on the Opioid Crisis. And this is basically kind of verbatim of that article, so I'm just going to kind of blaze through this. Chris was found hanging in his room at the MGM Grand Detroit Hotel in May 2017 following a Soundgarden show at the city's Fox Theater. His body was found soon after he had spoken with a slurred voice on the phone to Vicky. The death was ruled a suicide, but his family has questions the medical examiner's ruling, saying that he had a prescription for an anti-anxiety medication, Ativan, and a higher-than-recommended dosage may have caused him to experience suicidal thoughts. Vicky believes that her husband was not depressed and it was not a suicide, but instead brought on by the effects of Ativan. Chris had a brain disease, and a doctor who, unfortunately, like many, was not properly trained on or educated on addiction, Cornell told the task force, according to People. We must integrate addiction treatment into our health systems. No more false narrative about the need to hit rock bottom. No more secret societies. No more shame. We must educate health care providers on how to treat addiction and best support recovery. I think I see why people don't like Vicky. Yeah? Is that she's saying that he was not... Um, <clears throat> there's a few things in there that I... I can see things wrong with her statement. I do, but yeah. there was a lot of hate for her. I mean, it's one thing to be kind of uneducated and harsh with what you're saying about your loved ones. But it's completely different than... It seemed like there are a couple levels of Vicky hate. Well... But if there's that, there's probably other other instances. Fair. Because that just seems... Ugh, whatever. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm not going to... I'm going to try to remain unbiased. Well, <laughs> if he's... He had always struggled from an early age with drugs. He had struggled with depression. I get and that. And putting but, those two together... I get that. But blaming the medication... And the healthcare provider. And the healthcare provider just seems a little crass. I mean, I think you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna go, I'm gonna put a kibosh on this right now and say that this is far too heavy and multifaceted for us to take on in a single podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we don't understand as podcasters. I mean, I'm not like I said, I'm not a doctor. That's and, true. And. We don't know Vicky. We don't know her situation. We don't know Chris's situation. And I think as fans, we think that we know somebody one way and they're completely different. We don't understand. And even their closest friends and family may not understand what they're going through. Oh, and yeah, that's true. That is true. So I'll finish this little My section. My opinions up. aside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, and I can understand why people would dislike her after this, but it seemed like it was, there's a couple reasons why people really didn't like her. And yeah, the discussion was led by bipartisan heroin and opioid task force co-chairs, Congresswoman Anna Cluster and Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick and Congressman Donald Norcross and Representative Martha Robbie. 
Other panelists included in the discussion were U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Health Brett P. Grenor and American Society of Addiction Medicine Dr. Kelly J. Clark. Since her husband's passing, Vicki has become an expert and advocate on the issues of drug abuse, highlighting the importance of ending misconceptions about what she says is a totally preventable and treatable disease. Okay, yeah, I can see. I can see the issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris had struggled with substance abuse since childhood, but had been sober for years, and at the time of the singer's death, prescription drugs were found in his system, including Ativan. Last month, Chris was honored at a tribute concert in Los Angeles where the remaining members of Soundgarden and Audio Slave, along with Metallica and Foo Fighters and others, performed. A box set featuring music from all three of Chris's bands, as well as his solo records, was actually issued in November, so you can order that online. I actually found it online, and it's, I think it's like $40, so it's really, really reasonable. Nice. But um, I included like... Five quotes from Chris, which I feel kind of give a little bit of an insight into Chris. None of these are funny. So these are some Chris quotes. I try to solve my problems by writing music and recording albums. But you know what's really funny about that? Once the album becomes a success, it doesn't solve your problems. It just gets harder to write the next album. Here's his next quote. Yes, I battle with that all the time. Let Me Drown is probably one of my most disturbing songs i've ever written usually if i write lyrics like you know that are bleak or dark it usually makes me feel better that one didn't it made me question whether it was a song that was all right to play should we even do this it was so negative interview with request magazine in october of 1994 and when andy andrew wood died i couldn't listen to his songs for about two years after that and it was for that reason his lyrics often seemed like they can tell that story but then again, my lyrics often could tell that same one in terms of seeing everything as a matter of life and death. Whether it's that you're feeling that all the time, that's when you're going to have to write. It's sort of a morbid exchange when someone who is a writer like that dies and then everyone starts picking through his lyrics. In Kurt Cobain's case, whenever he was thinking or whatever he was writing, there wasn't an arrow pointing at what his demise was. It was a stream of thought. It's a possibility. It's definitely something that someone was feeling when they were writing. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't either. And I think that's, looking back, that, that says a lot. Mm, yeah. Um, okay, so another one. I, I think that we all carry a depressive streak in us, but most people just hide it. A lot of people think that entertainment has to be something loud and cheerful and happy. I don't buy into it. Depression can be very inspiring. At least for me, it can. The quiet aspects of life are very important because, let's face it, life is pretty difficult. And this one's from an interview with Chris on New York Rock, and this came out on October 1st, 1999. Something that I've done since I was a kid of opening windows and imagining what it would be like to jump, but I never take it seriously. Okay, and here's the, the final Cornell quote, which was, I was depressed for a long time. If you're depressed long enough, it's almost a comfort, a state of mind that you've made peace with because you've been with it for so long. It's a very selfish world. And that is an interview with Men's Health Magazine on September of 2006. And that's kind of where we're going to put a cap in this. However, because of the the seriousness of this episode, I actually wanted to include the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Because if you or anyone that you know is seriously depressed, this number can save your life and these are people that they're they're, they're there to help you. It's someone to talk to that can give you perspective, and no one should ever be alone. And no one should ever have to walk through this world feeling that you're the only person that feels this way. And so the number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and you can call 1-800-273-8255. And that's where we're going to end this episode and 
please, guys, if you ever feel alone, just reach out because there are people in your life that will reach back and some of those people will be us. You okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Well, as we had mentioned at the beginning, it's it's just it's a very heavy topic. It's a very it's a very serious subject and you know, so just quiet. Yeah. I've never had a friend commit suicide, but I know people that have been very close. Something that I never want anyone to feel. Agreed. And so that's basically where we're going to end this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening in. We hope that this was at least, I know it was not one of our more humorous ones or lighter ones, but there are some times in life where you have to tackle the really difficult ones. And this was one of those Unfortunately, there will be others. Yeah. And so with that, I'm just going to give you the information for our social media if you ever need to reach out to us or want to reach out to us. If you want to support the show, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrollLT. You can find us on Facebook at rockandrollheavenpod. You can follow our Instagram at rockandrollheavenLT. We do have a website, but again, like I said, I'm on strike. I'm not giving out the website. And please email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And again, guys, we would love your feedback. So please head to iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use and leave us a review. We would love a five-star review, um, but we will take anything. (laughs) (laughs) Your reviews help people find their way to the podcast and then that helps us be able to put out more content and it also helps us to get your feedback too about what you think of the show you know if there's something that you don't like something that you are really enjoying it just really helps us get an idea i mean we're we're new to this this is only what episode eight Seven? seven, seven or eight, seven or eight. It really helps us just get an idea of where we're at too. So we appreciate any feedback and and reviews. Yeah, and um, I guess keep rocking in the free world. And Tracy, I love you. I love you. Don't ever forget that. You either. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 